Keith Hennessy was director of the U.S. National Economic Council and a key advisor to the president as the financial crisis hit the U.S. economy in 2008. So he's been inside the White House during a major crisis and has seen a recovery. To stem this tide, he reminds us that we have to rely on each other as well as the government. Those actions and that layer of society in between individuals and the government is really important and it really needs to step up and it's encouraging to see it stepping up. We talk about how our government is structured to solve problems and how leaders can make the most of the information in front of them while also making the best use of their voice. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. Our guest on this episode of The Strategist is Keith Hennessy. These days, he teaches at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and at Stanford Law School and is a leadership fellow at the Bush Institute, where he's teaching our leadership program sessions. During the Bush administration, though, Keith was the assistant to the president for economic policy and was the director of the National Economic Council during the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. So in those days, Keith was working around the clock to blunt the impact of that financial crisis on on our economy. So we thought it'd be interesting today to hear about that experience while we're reacting to the COVID-19 pandemic that's happening right now. Keith, thank you so much for taking time while you're social distancing to call in. Happy to help. Uh, and hello from Palo Alto, California. Well, first off, can you paint us a picture of what it's like to be a decision maker uh, in government during a time like this? And Because I know right now I'm watching the news and there's just a constant stream of information. Things are changing by the minute and some of it is, is fact, some of it is conjecture, some of it is somewhere in between. What's that stream of information like inside the White House and in our government? Yeah, well, uh, an advantage you have when you're working in the White House is that you get, uh, you get the best information um, that's out there. Um, uh, I always joke that one of the wonderful privileges is you can pick up the phone and call pretty much anyone in the world and say, I need to help the president understand about your area of expertise. Can you spend some time with me? And the person will always say yes. Um, and then you have, you know, you have a, a tremendous uh, roster of experts working in the government and then also outside of government um, who can help feed you information. So the information tends to find you, and if it doesn't, you've got a you've got a team of talented people who can go find out uh, the best available answer to any question that's out there. But there definitely is sort of a fog of war where um, you think you know what's going on, and you probably have a better picture than almost anyone else. Uh, but there are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of things that um, you know that you're just making educated guesses at. Um, right. So that's tough. Uh, in hindsight, um, this is one of the big mistakes in terms of historic analysis, is in hindsight, it is very easy to forget um, the things that now seem obvious, but were not obvious at the time. Um, you know, the biggest mistake about hindsight analysis is at the time, you didn't know what was going to happen next. And while you thought you knew what your actions and decisions might, uh, might produce, uh, you're not always certain. Um, and then the other thing is, is it's stressful. Um, and so you learn how individuals uh, react to stressful environments, and then you learn how teams 
um, react to stressful environments. And, you know, uh, I think it also depends on how long the crisis lasts and how long the pressure is applied. Um, it's one thing to be in a stressful situation, uh, situation for days and weeks. It's a whole nother thing to be in it for weeks and months. Um, and, uh, you know, that wears on people and, um, you know, and over time that takes a toll because the people who are making these decisions are after all human. Right. That's actually kind of interesting. And, and so how, how do you keep a team functioning under these kind of, and in, in, under this kind of situation and where it might, we might be doing this for a long time? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I have any tricks. Um, we were in, in one respect, we were fortunate in that the, um, the financial crisis in 2008 hit in year eight. So uh, the Bush team, uh, we knew how to uh, operate as a team. We knew how the mechanisms of governments worked. Um, a lot of us had four or five or six or seven years under our belts um, working for this president, working with each other. Um, so we had those advantages of experience and of knowing each other. And, and frankly, we had a really good team um, in that last year, um, you know, with, with Hank Paulson sort of as the, the field general for the president, with Ben Bernanke over at the Fed and Kevin Warsh, um, and with a lot of amazing people internally. And so that team kind of, you know, it, it means that you don't have to worry about those aspects of it. You can just focus on the crisis at hand. So we had a bunch of pros. We had a bunch of pros who knew how to work together. And then, you know, you just you kind of say, look, there will be time to sleep and time to rest uh, on the back end of this. We're just going to keep pushing basically because we have to. I think the other thing is, is the morale um, is really important. And, and the Bush team, we were really fortunate because the morale comes in large part from uh, the president. Um, you know, the morale and the tone, uh, I always say that the tone in the White House is 80% set by the president and 20% by the White House chief of staff. And we had a president and a chief of staff who were creating a tone and environment where the rest of us didn't have to worry about the politics. Um, we could basically just focus on what was the, what was the best policy and how do we try to make it happen? So, and you mentioned that the, that you knew how the government worked, and and with the government with all of its departments and with experts who sometimes have competing priorities. So, in in general strokes, can you talk about how to how these departments all work together and coordinate during a crisis like this? Well, that's what the White House Policy Councils are for. Um, at the time, we had four of them. There are now three um, in the current White House. Uh, the National Security Council is the granddaddy of them all. Uh, and then the National Economic Council and the Domestic Policy Councils. Um, and I worked on the, on the National Economic Council staff. So these are people who work in the White House for the president. Um, and uh, their job is to coordinate uh, policymaking in their, in their area for the president. Um, all the information that comes in for the president uh, goes through the Policy Council to sort of structure it and make sure the, the president knows what's going on and what that best information is. And in particular, because the president has got a lot of advisors, um, each of whom is responsible for looking at a part of the problem, and the policy council staff's job is to make sure that the president has the information uh, that they need uh, to look at the whole problem. Um, and so uh, when you run one of these uh, policy councils, you get very good at running meetings and conference calls um, to pull all the advisors together uh, to, to compare information to figure out what decisions the president needs to make, 
and then to make sure that the president hears from all of you know his advisors that he needs to. We we would joke that our job was to set up clean fights, clean arguments, <laughs> um, where you'd have conflicting advice. The you know one team of advisors would say the president should do X, and other advisors would say the president should do Y, and you. You want to make sure the president gets the information he needs so that he can make that decision. And then when he makes the decision, um, that uh, everybody throughout the executive branch actually executes and does what the president wants to do. Right. So you would actually present X and Y, both Team X and Team Y would present to the president and let him make that decision? Yeah. And, and I shouldn't describe it as really two teams. That, that mm-hmm. was a, a, a mis, misspeak, uh, misstatement on my part. These are, these are different advisors who are all part of the president's team, but who right, right, right. just disagree on a particular question. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, these, these decisions are hard. None of the options are particularly good um, because you're always over-constrained. Uh, but there are just different trade-offs and different choices that the advisors would make. And so what you want to do is you want to hear the president have the president hear those arguments, be able to push on the advisors and then say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, you know, the privilege of working for the president is you get to be in the room to make the argument right. for the option that you think you should make. Um, and then uh, when the president decides it, you've got to go out there and, and execute, even if he went with uh, the other option, the one that you didn't recommend. The right. interesting thing about the financial crisis is that there were a lot fewer disagreements about what to do among the advisors. Hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many different policy meetings I was in in my six and a half years working for him, where we had knock down, drag out battles between the advisors over what to recommend to the president. Um, real serious, deep disagreements um, over what was the right course of action, then the president would decide. But in the fall of 2008, there really was something approaching a consensus among the advisors um, on what was the what were the right policy actions to take. The hard part was, um, uh, you know, getting Congress to do them, getting Congress to approve the TARP, um, and then, uh, you know, adjusting and adapting as the, the conditions on the ground change. And the conditions were changing constantly. And um, how did you know when you had enough information to make a recommendation or went away just, just a little bit more and see what, if the situation would change and in, in just if you waited one more day. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, if the, if the crisis is moving fast enough, um, your general presumption has to be um, uh, make the decision uh, and then move on to the next one. Um, uh, I don't know how many of your listeners will remember the TV show MASH um, with the mobile army surgical uh, hospital, but where you have the, you know, the wounded coming in and you're just doing your best to kind of patch things up. Um, you're not trying to come up with the perfect solution. You're trying to keep things moving so that you can move on to the, you know, to the next problem. Uh, I sometimes describe it as when, when we were in the depths of the crisis, you're looking to trade up on problems where you say, okay, we have a, you know, we have a really serious deep problem we have a couple options. Neither of them is going to serve. Uh, neither of them is going to solve it perfectly. This one has a pretty high chance of success, and it, we know it's going to cause a couple other problems that we sort of sort of understand. But they're much smaller problems. Let's trade up from the big, certain, nightmarish problem we have to any one of these two smaller problems, and then we'll deal with them later. So you're you're sort of triaging as you're as you're working through the system. That's just a great problem-solving tip in general, like regardless of, even not in a crisis, that's just a great way to keep making progress on, on difficult issues. Yeah, and, and uh, I think in the current environment, 
um, you know, they're, they're, they're probably dealing with that. I think the other thing is that you focus on the decisions rather than all of the data points and the information. Mm-hmm. Um, you say, okay, maybe we'll learn more data about what's going on in a particular set of banks or what's going on with the disease. But if we wait another day and we get more information, is that going to change anyone's recommendation? Hmm, right. If we learn X versus we learn Y, do we think that learning X versus Y is going to change what we're going to do? Right. And if the answer is no, if the answer is you're still going to make the same decision, no matter what the information is, or it's not going to have a measurable effect on the recommendation you'd make or the decision the president would make, well, then the information isn't actually that valuable. You might want to know it, but if it's not going to affect the choice significantly, then you make the choice now and you move forward. So on, a, on maybe a more optimistic tone, you've seen a, a crisis up close and witnessed our, recover, our economy recovered. Can you talk about some things in, this, in the upcoming recovery process that might give us some optimism about what's happening now? Um, you want me to be optimistic? Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> well, uh, as, as, sure. as much as humanly possible? Yeah. Um, uh, no, I joke that I can find a silver lining in any situation these days. Um, yes. Challenge accepted. Uh, so, uh, first thing is that, um, we don't know whether the recovery will be what economists call a U-shaped recovery or a V-shaped recovery. Uh, a U-shaped recovery, uh, the, the growth of the economy looks like a U. It's, it's got a flat bottom and then it eventually jumps up. A V-shaped recovery is the economy dips down sharply and then you hope that it bounces back sharply. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we found and that I think surprised a lot of the economists after the financial shock is that the economy was more U-shaped. It took the recovery after we had gotten out, after we had hit bottom in mid-2009 was very slow. It basically took almost a decade for the economy to get back to sort of robust growth. It's only been over the past year or two that we've seen sort of a healthy, robust, strong-growing economy. So that recovery was slow. I would assume that if this crisis were short in duration, um, that the recovery would be more likely to be V-shaped and would be more likely to bounce back. Because what we've got right now is what economists call a negative supply shock to labor, right? Everyone's at home, and a lot of people aren't working and producing, or they're working and producing less. Well, if we got the all clear s- signal today, everyone would run back to work and start working and start making stuff again. Um, so you would expect the economy would bounce back quickly, and that would be a good optimistic sign. The hard part is, is, is that becomes less true the longer that this crisis lasts, the longer that we are stuck inside, because at some, pe- at some point, individuals and families and businesses start to go bankrupt and then it's not just that we're all stuck at home waiting, but that some of us don't have jobs to go back to when we right. do get the all clear signal. And in 2008, we saw we saw a lot of ripples in the economy that that touched sectors maybe unexpectedly. Um, maybe it wasn't unexpected to an economist, but I think to a lot of the public it was unexpected. Like student loans were hurt, and thus students got hurt by it. And, and so, do you? What are some long term and downstream impacts of this crisis that might not be obvious right now, but we should be prepared for? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bankruptcy is, is, is the problem. Um, uh, what you have right now um, is some workers and some businesses aren't getting any income, 
right? Um, your employer furloughs you and says, look, since you can't come into work, we're not going to pay you. Um, you'd like employers to, and you know, kudos to, the, to those employers who are continuing to pay their employees um, while, they're, you know, while they're not able to come to work. But a lot of, the, you know, a lot of firms and a lot of industries, they're, they're laying people off or they're furloughing. And similarly, if you're a business that relies on foot traffic, you're not getting any or many customers, and so you just don't have income. At some point, that turns into what we call a liquidity problem, which is you don't have enough cash on hand, whether you're a family or a business, um, to pay your bills. Um, now, you know, America was built on credit, um, and so a lot of families and a lot of businesses are going to start to run up more debt, and that's appropriate. Um, in a situation like this, but there are a lot of businesses that, you know, that are credit constrained, a lot of families that are credit constrained and they can't borrow Um, or that, you know, there's a, there's a limit to, to their borrowing. And so if we're all locked in place um, for a long enough time, and if we can't earn incomes, whether those that's workers and families earning incomes or businesses not getting foot traffic at some point, that liquidity, that cash and that borrowing runs out. Um, and you're going bankrupt. Um, and that's what you have to worry about if this is lasting months or, God forbid, quarters, um, is just the wave of bankruptcies and then all of the, the knock-on effects that those have, um, you know, which, will, which will ripple throughout the, throughout the economy. I think the other thing uh, that I'm trying to understand better is um, the possibility of waves of the disease, uh, waves over time, you know, maybe months or even quarters apart. Um, and then also trying to understand how those waves might um, uh, travel around the world. What, what would happen in the good scenario where we get this uh, disease kind of under some semblance of control in April or April and May, um, but they don't in Iran or some other large country with not as good of a public health system? Um, you know, so we all do a good job here. We start to repair and recover, but then another wave of the disease comes from overseas at some point. Um, how do you think about that both from a human life and health standpoint and from a, you know, waves battering the shore standpoint from an e- economically? This is why step one, we've all got to stay home. We just, there's, there's no yeah. two ways about it. Uh, the line I did like was your, your grandparents were called to war you're being called to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Uh, you know, do your part. We can do this. We can handle this. This is this is my specialty. Like I'm I'm ready for this. I can do this. Right. So I mean, you know, this this is bad, and and there's going to be a lot of harm, and people are going to get sick and die, and 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 that is obviously tragic. Um, uh, but for those of us who are you know who are locked in our homes here, let's not overstate. Um, you know, the sacrifice that we're making, at least in the in the very short run here, compared to you know, young men going off to Europe to die. Right. Well, and, and you make a good point, too, in that we are seeing some of that, we're seeing that American spirit and that employers are continuing to pay their employees as best they can, regardless of whether or not they're able to go to work. We're seeing a lot of, um, a lot of the areas like grocery stores and, and other key elements of the supply chain hiring more workers from these sectors that are hurt that are hurt um what are are there other things that we can be doing as as businesses to keep the economy moving well i i want to i want to take your your comment there and, and take it in two slightly different directions here these are Please. two points that i'm i'm emphasizing to my students um one is uh, i think there is a tendency uh, especially in a crisis to say what is government doing 
uh, to fix our problems. And the government has important roles to play, uh, especially, by the way, your state and local government when you're talking about a public health crisis. Um, for your Texas listeners, it's more important what Governor Abbott is doing and what your city and county officials are doing. Um, that's even more important than what the feds are doing. They're both important. But for public health policy, a tremendous amount of the ground truth and ground actions comes from your state and local officials, whereas mm -hmm. other types of policies are, are, are more done at the federal level. But there's a tendency to say, you know, government needs to do everything to, to fix this. And I think that under underestimates the importance and the potential impact of the voluntary cooperative civil layer of society. And that's not just businesses, but it's also nonprofit organizations and charities and volunteer groups. Um, you know, it's your local Kiwanis, it's the boys and girls clubs and the boy scouts and girls club scouts and churches and temples and mosques that are doing charitable work and teenagers going to the store to get groceries for old people. Those, those actions and that layer of society in between individuals and the government is really important and it really needs to step up and it's encouraging to see it stepping up because, you know, it's, it's not just sort of feel good stuff. It's actually important in terms of the economy and in terms of the way our, our society functions. And so we need to, we need to encourage that and reward it and thank people for doing it. And then the other point, is that it is, uh, it's very easy to focus on the mistakes that are being made or bad actors, whether they're individuals or especially when they're elected officials. And there's plenty of that. Um, you know, federal government clearly fouled up the tests here. They've made some other big mistakes. Um, you know, and so I can build a long list of, of problems and mistakes and errors that I'm seeing or comments that I don't like. And I just tell my students that when, when we're in the midst of the crisis, I really don't see anything productive in me going and trashing the policymakers publicly uh, for their screw-ups. Uh, you know, it's easy to do. There will be plenty of opportunity on the back end right. to do after-action after analysis, figure out who fouled up and why and what they should have done differently to hold uh, elected officials accountable. But when you're in the midst of the natural disaster, and that's what this is. This is a weeks and maybe months-long natural disaster that's not the time to sit around whining and complaining and, you know, expressing your outrage. That's the time to figure out what problems need to be solved and, you know, how are we going to do it? So, for instance, I don't think I can remember too many times when I've agreed with Representative Ocasio-Cortez um, <laughs> on a matter of policy uh, to say that, you know, I have a different outlook on policy and politics than she does would be an understatement. Fair enough. Uh, but Ms. Ocasio-Cortez was using the power of her Twitter account to encourage people in their, you know, teens and 20s and early 30s not to go out and party at the bars and restaurants. Yep. Uh, and she deserves tremendous praise for doing that. She has a lot of influence. It was absolutely the right thing to do. And so rather than me complaining about things that she says that, you know, I don't like or I disagree with, she deserves my compliment, my praise for doing the right thing. And that's what I would encourage my students and other people to do is look for opportunities to reinforce the good behavior and the good actions of elected officials rather than doing what we've all been doing so much of for the past few years, which is look at this horrible thing that this politician I don't like has done. That, you know, it's out there, but I don't see any particular purpose in highlighting it right now while we're in the middle of this ongoing natural disaster. 
And that's a good example of just you find you find a problem that you have the that you have the power to address in some way and take advantage of it, whether that's whether that's Ms. Acacia Cortez using her her voice or whether it's someone that's just getting the groceries for their for someone that can't. That's it's solving one problem at a time, like you'd mentioned earlier. Right. CDC fouled up the tests. Um, I'm less interested right now in why or whose fault it is or assigning blame. Um, there will be plenty of opportunity, you know, months from now or quarters from now to figure that out. Uh, I'm much more interested in who is working um, to create tests that can be, you know, used and distributed and get results easily. Um, you know, there are, there's a long list of problems that need to be solved. I'm, I'm interested in trying to figure out who's, who's actually working to try to solve them and then praise them for it and support them when and where I can, uh, even if I'm disinclined to be supportive of, the, of them in other contexts. You mentioned that you, that you teach your students the, these lessons, and, and we're lucky to pull you away from Stanford for a little while every so often to teach the participants in our Presidential Leadership Scholars Program and our Stand to Veteran Leadership Scholars Program. And, and like during PLS, you're one of the central instructors for the 60 up-and-coming professionals that learn lessons from these four Republican and Democrat administrations. Bush 41 and 43, LBJ, Clinton. And so what what kind of lessons do you try and teach those leaders and who are really coming from a variety of backgrounds, professionally and personally? Like what kind of lessons are, are universal across all these different sectors that you can teach all these all these folks? Yeah. Um, uh, well, first of all, it's just fun to, to interact with this, this <laughs> group of leaders, which is which is really diverse in a whole bunch of different ways. Um uh, look, the, uh, uh, the PLS and VLP programs, they bring me in to talk about decision-making. Um, and in particular, uh, uh, what I try and teach them is about, uh, you know, what I know about presidential decision-making on questions of policy, especially economic policy. Um, so I talk about uh, how things worked uh, in the Bush White House, um, how President Bush made decisions, and how we as a team uh, did our best to support him making decisions and about things like how do you make complex, multi-dimensional decisions that are highly over-constrained um, in an environment where you're getting sort of beat up from all sides? Um, how do you manage a team that's trying to you know, present conflicting recommendations to the boss? Um, and how do you do that in high-stress situations? And then more broadly, um, since, leaving, uh, since leaving the Bush administration and, and during my teaching, I... You know, I spend more time thinking about civics and civic education and um, trying to figure out how in a diverse society where we, you know, we're operating in a democracy that is designed to disperse power. Um, and and how, do we, um, how do we operate within that democracy uh, to make decisions when we you know, fundamentally disagree and when, frankly, um, a lot of people are not acting as the best versions of themselves. Um, and so it's, you know, trying to get people to talk to one another, to listen to one another, to understand why they may be making, uh, different decisions or different recommendations and then to practice that, um, you know, we all operate in our own little bubbles and to get people who are from different bubbles in society and to say, okay, let's imagine that you guys are advisors, um, to a, uh, to a president. Uh, last year, I had them be immigration advisors to President Oprah, Oprah Winfrey and Vice President <laughs> Tony Romo. Um, <laughs> who, is, who actually might be running soon. All right. Um, uh, I, you know, um, and, uh, you know, to say, you know, y'all come from different backgrounds. Um, you have different views on immigration policy, um, but you're all advising the same, the same president, vice presidential team. 
sit down and argue it out. And how do you have a constructive argument? How do you have a constructive disagreement? And how do you present those disagreements uh, to the decision makers so that you can get a decision? And hopefully those skills are are useful in other contexts. Um, and also the, the interactions and the, the manner of analysis and thinking about these complex interdisciplinary problems, you know, unpacking the problem and trying to look the different components and figuring out how to put them together and, and make a good decision that represents the values of your principle. Um, hopefully those skills are transferable to, to other sectors of our society. I keep hearing great things about your sessions and I need to sneak down into the room one day when these get going again and, and listen in, learn a thing or two myself. Please come on down. So we always ask our guests one, one closer question. And this, uh, this could be about the crisis that's happening right now, or it could be about any, really anything that's on your mind. What do you think we're not talking enough about that we should be talking about as a nation? Oh boy. Yeah. We try and stump people with it. We, this, this is where we try try and see what we can, what we can do to stump someone. Um, what are we not spending enough time, uh, thinking about, uh, so there has been an increased focus on civic education, um, and on the concepts underlying a liberal democracy and free market capitalism. Um, and a lot of the people, um, whom I respect, a lot of people, um, with whom I worked, um, in the Bush administration say that there is a whole generation of uh, young people who are growing up not understanding the ideas that underlie uh, freedom, democracy, and capitalism. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure that those, those high school kids and, and college students and graduate students understand what those ideas are and what, what are those foundational ideas that a lot of people my age you know, grew up with and took for granted. Um, so people need to understand those ideas and everyone sits around and nods and says, oh, you're absolutely right. And then I raise my hand and say, can someone give me an example of what one of those ideas are? Um, and people say, well, you know, the ideas (laughs) and, and they don't actually explain what, what the specific ideas are. And so there's so many things that I grew up with taking for granted, like, Power is dispersed, intentionally dispersed in a democracy. And um, in our system of government, when the American people fundamentally disagree on a policy question, our democracy, our democratic system doesn't resolve it. We are fundamentally at odds as a country on what should be done about certain questions in immigration reform. Um, And our system, our legislators, they don't resolve that. Well, the reality is, is that's a feature, not a bug of our system, is our system is designed not to allow a small minority of people to force their will upon everyone else. And that's an important structural design question in the way that our system was set up, our democratic system was set up, but people don't understand it, they don't focus on it. And then the people who are saying, we need to understand how our democracy works, they aren't sort of identifying those questions and saying, what do we need to teach the next generation? So that's what I'm that's what I'm working on, and that's what I wish more people would think about is what are those ideas um, specifically so that we can pass them along to the next generation and hopefully take ideas that have worked pretty well um, you know, to create yeah. this amazing society that we have and, and make sure that they, you know, that they continue, they persist, and that you know, they have more opportunities to continue to work well. A big focus of our Liberty and Leadership program, which is one of our, our, our other leadership programs, um, which is teaching um, young leaders from Burma who are who they're 
democracy is still trans they're transitioning into democracy right now and and they hear these lessons and they they drink them up like water because they come from a society that that doesn't have this and they hear this like oh this is this is genius this is this is fascinating and they they love that and if they a way if I, I wish i could all i see their expressions and wish that, like i wish we could get that with all of the all the natives of this country too to get that same appreciation for the the work that went into creating this system well, I often see that that uh, people who enter my classrooms um, that are from countries that don't have li- liberal democracy, that don't have free market capitalism, they understand what we have and they appreciate it a lot more than those of us who grew up in it. And it's you know, what's the line? Fish don't know they're wet, right? <laughs> right. You know, we're 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 operating a system where there's so much that we take for granted, and so it, it makes it harder for us to see it. And the sad part is it makes it harder for us to appreciate it. Um, so those outside perspectives. And look, uh, some of the most passionate Americans I know are people who are Americans by choice, who yep. say, you know, I escaped, you know, horrible, horrible regime X, and now I want to be a part of the system. Um, we need those people to help us understand what it is about our system that makes it so special and, and create so many positive, positive outcomes within that within that system um, so that we can identify them and reinforce them and teach them to others. So true. Well, Keith, this has been really educational. Like I I feel like I've learned a ton about how from the inside of how this, how the government is working right now and, and really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you've got a lot that you can be doing right now and Netflix series to catch up on also and really appreciate the time. All right. Well, I'm happy to help and uh, thank you for listening and wash your hands, everyone. (laughs) Thanks, Keith. Learn more about the Presidential Leadership Scholars program at www.presidentialleadershipscholars.org. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.